Welcome back to Scripture Central. Come follow me. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and today we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 through 16. Paul is trying to correct a lot of misunderstandings. He's answering their questions that the Corinthian saints had written to him about. We've got evidence that there are several letters going back and forth, even though we just have two, possibly even seven letters. But in these misunderstandings, we get some of the most beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, I think the message of the resurrection is more beautiful in these chapters than in any other text in the New Testament epistles. He also talks about the gifts of the Spirit again and worship. Remember this, 1 Corinthians comes in the historical time period of Acts 18 through 20. He's finished with his second mission where he served in Corinth for 18 months. He's now on his third mission in Ephesus, and he's writing to them. It appears that he's writing in the springtime shortly before he wants to come and visit. But we don't know exactly when it is, somewhere between 54 and 57. He's probably writing this letter to them. And he begins in chapter 14, talking about the problems with the gift of tongues. And for 19 verses, he goes through all these challenges. I'm going to read, first of all, from the new rendition. I hope some of you have had the chance to find this. Over the last several decades, Brigham Young University has been working on a translation of the Bible by those who are richly ingrained in the Restoration. And so they go back to the original Greek, and they are looking at all the other um, resources available to them and coming up with a translation that is consistent with the doctrine of the Restoration. Each book of the New Testament gets its own book in this large volume of commentary. And in chapter 14, verse 1, in the New Rendition, it reads, Seek after love and strive for spiritual gifts, and especially that you might speak with divine inspiration. He may be talking to missionaries. He may be talking just to all the saints, but whoever has the opportunity to speak, he's saying, make sure you're speaking from divine inspiration. In verse 2, we've got a nice Joseph Smith translation change. He says, for he that speaketh in another tongue, the word unknown is crossed out because all languages are known to God, speaketh not unto men, but unto God. Now, this problem with another tongue and tongues is mentioned six different times, this unknown tongues. He takes it out. And in fact, not only did he take it out, but Joseph Smith spoke on the exact same subject in a sermon in Nauvoo. He says, the gift of tongues is the smallest gift, yet it is one that is most sought after. Be not so curious about tongues. Do not speak in tongues except there is an interpreter present. The ultimate design of tongues is to speak to foreigners. The gifts of God are all useful in their place. But when they are applied to that which God does not intend, they prove an injury, a snare, a curse, instead of a blessing. And just on a small tangent, I have to let you know that I've read many writings from other groups of Christians in the early 19th century, and they identified members of the Restoration, followers of the prophet Joseph Smith, as those that spoke in tongues and had the gifts of the Spirit. It was one of the ways that they identified us. And, and they said they were crazy. They were crazy. And so Joseph is saying, stop it. We're not, we're not blessing the kingdom this way. Let's seek the gifts of the Spirit that will help grow the kingdom. Continuing on in chapter 14, verse 3 and 4, the NIV reads, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening and encouraging and comfort and edifies the church. We talked a little bit last week about the word prophecy and prophesy and to be a prophet. They all refer to someone who has a testimony of Jesus Christ. You can read more about that in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 10. But 
I appreciate the fact that this whole section is for men and women. And even though the King James says, now brethren, in verse six, if you read the NIV or others, you'll see that it's brothers and sisters or disciples of Christ or anyone. Um, so make sure you keep this open mind that this is for our young men and our young women and our children. It doesn't matter your age or your gender. It matters the level of your faith. And he continues on in chapter 14. If I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall it profit you? For if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? This is the time of the Roman Empire when uh, the battle cry was well known and the Roman soldiers were occupying most every city. And so the trumpet call would tell the soldiers what to do. You know, before loudspeakers, trumpets were used to communicate a lot of things. Verse 12 continues on. As ye are zealous of the spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel in edifying the church. So he's addressing their problems, remember, and he is now answering their questions. And he says, you know, I'm glad that you're zealous, but let's make sure that you're edifying, that you're doing things to build the kingdom. Continuing on in verse 15 and 16, also again in the NIV, I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, and then skipping down a little bit to 16, how can someone else say amen? Paul is trying to unify the church. There's a lot of divisions in their worship. They have a lot of um, disunity. And it sounds to me like a lot of people are speaking at the same times and languages that no one can understand. Their worship services were not a spiritual feast at this time, according to this letter, as I'm reading some of the challenges that are there. He continues on in verse 22, again in the NIV. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. And that is the gift of the testimony of Jesus Christ, that we can testify, that we can prophesy that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is our Savior and Redeemer. Continuing on to verse 26, and skipping down all the way to verse 33 in the NIV, he starts out, Brothers and sisters, Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Speak one at a time, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. You know, I think once Paul left after 18 months, different leaders would come in and different people would do things. And I, I feel like they didn't have a lot of continuity. And Paul is hearing about these things from Chloe and other people who have come to visit him. And he is very concerned. This is probably not his first letter. In fact, we're told he already had earlier letters. So he's, they've been going back and forth and he's addressing these very fundamental issues of reverence during worship. In verse 31, he talks about the need for order. He says, for we may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. This idea of being comforted by the spirit is beautiful because sometimes the word comfort is the word spirit. They use it interchangeably, sometimes in the New Testament. It has beautiful implications. Right in the middle of this discussion on the gifts of the Spirit, the text seems to be ransacked, and we get two very strange verses that contradict about 23 verses that Paul says elsewhere. These two verses do not fit in. In fact, if you take them out, it flows better, and they talk about women's worship in public. So not only is Paul trying to address their misunderstandings, I will now try to address the misunderstanding of these two verses, because this is a strange one. Joseph Smith gave us a translation change, which is very helpful. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it's very helpful. 
he's reading this thing that says women aren't supposed to speak in church. He says, no, 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 no. In verse 34, he says, let your women keep silent in the churches for it is not permitted for them to rule in the church. And then he crosses out, they are commanded to be under obedience. And he says, they should be under obedience as it says in the law. And if they want to learn anything, let them go home and learn from their husbands. For it's a shame for a woman to rule in the church. So Joseph Smith goes back to the theme that Paul's been discussing, authority and order. However, Joseph did not ever go back to the original Greek. He did not cut these verses out. I don't know why, but not all of the changes that are wrong in the New Testament were corrected by Joseph Smith. I believe he did the best he could, um, but he himself kept going back and making more changes and more additions. It was not necessarily like it was in the Book of Mormon, the Word of God coming out. So if we are assuming that if Joseph didn't change it, then it's correct. I think we don't understand what the Joseph Smith translation actually is. Remember the most Dramatic changes in the Joseph Smith translation are those first 24 chapters in Genesis, and everything else is, is a lot lighter, a lot lighter touch. As I mentioned before, I like reading other translations, and in these verses, 14 through 35, I appreciate John W. Welch's translation here in Charting the New Testament. Instead of saying women should keep silent, like the KJV, it reads, women should be reverent. And instead of saying women should not speak, as the KJV, it says, women should not chatter, or women should be supportive. They're wonderful other words that can add to the worship service and help us see that the women are participating. This idea of them keeping silent contradicts what he's just said about the gifts of the Spirit and about women praying and prophesying in chapter 11. And I could keep going back every chapter. He Practically, he's mentioned something about female participation. In fact, I've got some of them written out here. You can all prophesy. That was just two verses back in chapter 14, verse 31. And in 39, he goes on and says, Sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. That's in another translation. And then in chapter 1, verse 2, he said, Women are also consecrated in Christ. And in chapter 11, remember, he said that women were going to be praying and prophesying in public worship. That's verse 5. In chapter 12, in verse 1, Women were to exercise the gifts of the Spirit. That's repeated in verse 6 and 7 and 11 of all of chapter 12. And also in chapter 12, do you remember in verse 13 and 14, he talked about women being baptized with the Spirit. And then verse 11 of chapter 1, he talks about Chloe is this female trusted source who is giving authentic information to Paul. I have a few other lists of many, many other verses where Paul is allowing women to speak. Their voices are heard. They are acting as witnesses. In fact, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, there are five different verses specifically that say women are to speak in church meetings, whether they're prophesying or preaching or praying. And if we look at all of the greater Pauline epistles, we see 12 more references where he highlights specifically women should be participating in worship services. So these two verses completely contradict it. It is also inconsistent with Jesus's example. Jesus called women to speak all the time. In fact, remember at the tomb, the angels came and told the women, go tell the apostles. I want you to testify and witness to the leaders of the church. It is completely inconsistent with what Christ taught and what is taught in the Restoration. Jesus not only called women as witnesses, but they traveled with him. He had them testifying with him. It's totally out of context. Almost every biblical scholar I've read on these verses outside of the church and inside of the church have said it's disruptive. There's something wrong here. 
And in fact, in some Greek texts, they took the two verses out and stuck them at the end because they didn't seem to fit. So they put them out of order. In the fourth century text, we can see these being moved around. In addition to all these things, like it doesn't flow and it doesn't fit, it's not consistent with Paul's and Jesus's other teachings, we also see that these teachings are part of the heresies. They come out of the Judaic Pharisaic ideas. There's a heretical Christian view in the first and second century that taught these same things. So I finally went back and looked at the early Greek sources. Now, remember, the King James is not taken. That's the Tectus Receptus. It's not one of the earliest versions, although it's a very good, accurate one. But I like more the Ephesus Greek, the text that was kept in Ephesus. I go back there, and these verses are not included. This was quite startling to me. They aren't even there. I think it's a later addition. We also see in the Restoration that the prophet Joseph Smith restored just the opposite. In fact, in section 25, verse 7, he calls Emma, and he says, Emma, you're going to be ordained, which we refer to as that the women will be called and set apart. And he says, Emma, I want you to be ordained to expound the scriptures, to exhort the church according as it shall be given thee by, he's referring to God's spirit. I also see in the Restoration, in addition to these wonderful verses that given very early in the Restoration, that Emma had the responsibility to teach and testify. I also see the Restoration of Eve as a good woman. That's starting in the Book of Mormon, a complete change on the history of the world. We also have the Restoration that there is actually a mother in heaven. We also have the Restoration of the Temple Ordinances for all that women can act in the highest order of the priesthood in their relationships, in temple ordinances, and that all the powers and authority of the priesthood and blessings of the priesthood can be shared in relationships for endowed sisters. This is a powerful change, not only in the 19th century, but in the early ancient church as well. And I don't think that Paul's verses there need to be a concern to us. I think they're inaccurate. Chapter 14 continues on in verse 36 with the gifts of the Spirit, right where we left before. And he says, did the word of the Lord originate with you, or are you the only ones who have received it? If you go from verse 32, you can see what he's talking about, and then just skip down to verse 36. That's what I just read in the BSB translation, where he's saying, you know, the gifts of the Spirit are for everyone. We all need them. And then in verse 37, he concludes here in the NIV on the gifts of the Spirit, If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's commandment. My brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly manner. So it's very consistent from there on. Now, perhaps there were some women who were trying to usurp authority, as Joseph Smith said, and perhaps the gifts of tongues were women all speaking at the same time. You know, perhaps there was a reason why those verses were there. I don't know. All I know is it's not consistent with our living prophet and the restoration. And next we come to chapter 15, which is the best chapter in all the epistles on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We start out in chapter 15, verse 1 through 11, speaking of Christ's resurrection, and then the resurrection of the dead, verses 12 through 28, and then the resurrection of the body, verses 35 to 39, and the heavenly kingdoms, verses 40 to 55. Starting in verses 3 through 5, we get a wonderful little hymn or prayer, or other Christians call it the first credo. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. The word that, hoti, is repeated four times here, and it's a Greek statement of belief or fact. And then this little group of two verses was expanded on to become the foundation of the Nicene Creed. So this became an important part of Christian tradition. He continues on in verse 6 and says that Christ appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And we know that many of them are still living and testifying that the early Christian church had the commission by Christ to go and spread the message to the whole world, that every member was a missionary then, just as we are now. In verse 7, he claims that Christ was seen of James. And he's not talking about Peter, James, and John. He's talking about the James that's alive right now when Paul is living, and that is James, the brother of the Lord. And James did not believe the Savior when he was growing up, according to the Gospel of John. But after Christ appeared to Mary and to Peter, he appeared to James. And the brother of the Lord was humble and meek enough to receive this visitation and to change and become a mighty leader in the church. And in fact, most people refer to him as the Bishop of Jerusalem, most Christians, or a great leader in Jerusalem. And verse 7 continues on and ends with saying, last of all, he was seen of me. So Paul has mentioned these 500 and James and Peter, and then he says, I have also received a commission from him. I am also an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he commissioned me to testify that I am an eyewitness. In verse 10, he reads, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, the word grace can mean merciful, um, forgiveness, kindness. Um, it has a lot. It's a beautiful word with lots of depth. And plug those other things in here. The kindness of God allows me to be who I am or the forgiveness of God. And that's the way I feel in my life, too. It is God's grace. It is God's forgiveness. It is the gift of repentance that allows me to be able to speak with the Spirit instead of being the man that I was. The resurrection message continues on in verse 12 to 28 as he talks about the resurrection of the dead. How say some that there is no resurrection of the dead? So obviously one of the questions that the Corinthian saints are writing Paul had to do with this. And he answers with these beautiful poetic words that Handel has now put to music in our Messiah. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. So since by Adam came death, by Jesus we have the resurrection. And he makes all these beautiful parallels. Verse 22 continues on, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man is his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward they that are at his coming. Now, the word his coming refers to the second coming. It's mentioned 38 times in the New Testament, but it always refers to the second coming of Christ. The second coming isn't used until like the second century of Christianity. It's always his coming because they're expecting it so soon. They aren't expecting to have to wait hundreds and hundreds and centuries and millennia like we are. Verse 24 continues on in the BSB. He's referring to Jesus and he says that he will hand over the kingdom of God, the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That's the BSB translation. And Christ is accountable to the Father, and their relationship is very close. 
And then comes the verses on the baptisms for the dead. This is one of our favorite verses that talk about the ability for the resurrection to cover all, not just those who are fortunate enough to have had a Bible in their hands, but all humanity who had the chance to learn about Christ, whether on this side of the veil or the other side of the veil, all can be redeemed and receive that gracious gift. This is the most wonderful message, I feel, um, in all of Christianity to understand this doctrine. And we alone are the only Christian denomination who practices this as an ordinance. Verse 29 reads, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they baptized for the dead? And he's saying, of course we have the resurrection. We're all baptizing. Why would we be baptizing if we didn't need the resurrection? And of course, he's fighting this problem about the physical body and the spiritual body because they don't realize the beauty of coming together again as an immortal soul. Joseph Smith also taught on this in the Restoration. In his journal history, it reads, the apostle Paul was talking to a people who understood baptism for the dead, for it was practiced among them. And he went on to say that the people could now act for their friends who had departed this life and that the plan of salvation was calculated to save all who were willing to obey the requirements of the law of God. And he went on and made a very beautiful discourse. That's all Joseph Smith. But we do read in section 128, what is the subject? It is the baptism for the dead. For we without them cannot be made perfect and neither can they without us be made perfect. Neither can they nor we be made perfect without those who have died in the gospel also. For it is necessary for the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times. There is such mutuality. There is such need. We need our forefathers. They need us. We need our progenitors. We need to work together in harmony. And whether we are gathering Israel on either side of the veil, we are building the kingdom of God in preparation for the second coming of our Savior. And that first baptism service happened right after his sermon. They went down to the water and Jane Nyman was baptized in behalf of her son, Cyrus Livingston Nyman. Brother Harvey Olmsted did the performing of the baptism and Vienna Jacques was the witness. So we had women witnessing then. We also had a horse as the second witness. We didn't have anyone else besides the horse because Vienna rode her horse out to watch it. So you see what happened. But um, back to the New Testament time, let's go back to chapter 15, verse 31. The Joseph Smith translation adds some interesting changes. I protest, and then Joseph changed the words and says, unto you the resurrection of the dead. And this is my, and then it goes back to King James, rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, the Lord. And Joseph adds daily, though I die. And in the NEB, it reads a little bit differently as well. I swear in my pride in you, my brothers, for in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I am proud of you. So very different meanings to many of these verses, depending on your translation. Um, I feel like the best translation is the translation of the Spirit. So I encourage you again to pray as you read and study these verses. Continuing on to chapter 15, verse 32, he says an interesting word here. He says he fought with wild beasts. Now, Paul's a Roman citizen. He's not going to be in an amphitheater fighting with wild beasts. The Strong's Concordance tells us of the Greek of these words means that he's exposed to fierce hostility. I think that's exactly what happened. And he continues on and talks about the fierce hostility is often bad company. Verse 33 of the NIV reads, bad company corrupts good character. 
And he's quoting here one of these old Greek comedies. It's sort of like me quoting Shakespeare, you know, to be or not to be. You know, he's quoting that bad company corrupts. These people would have known this. You know, Paul is so well read. He knows his Old Testament, he knows his Greek classics. It's terrific. He continues on with the last part about the resurrection in verses 35 to 39. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body will they come? That's the BSB translation of verse 35. And then he moves on to talk about the kingdoms of glory. And he refers to the celestial and the terrestrial. And elsewhere, Paul talks about the three heavens. But here he just refers to those two. But we see them as these great kingdoms of heaven. Verse 40, there are also celestial bodies. And then in the Joseph Smith translation, we've got that changed. The JST adds, and bodies celestial. And then going back to the King James, but the glory of the celestial is one and the Joseph Smith crashes it out and says the terrestrial and the telestial another. He keeps adding in the third one. Paul later talks about three heavens, but right here, we've just got these two in the King James translation. It's not until Joseph adds in the third. I love the parallel ways that Paul writes. And looking at verse 42, he says, the resurrection of the dead, and skipping ahead a little bit, is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. You know, we take all of our weaknesses before the Lord. We take our sins. We take our shortcomings. We take our faults, our ignorance, and we give it to Christ. And we strive to draw closer to him. And he nurtures us and he helps us grow. And we become saints through his name, through his witness, for the purification of his spirit. We are raised in power. It's a wonderful promise. Again, we get another beautiful tie between Christ and Adam in verses 45 to 47. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first man is of the earth, earthly, and the second man is of the Lord from heaven. This beautiful relationship between Adam and Christ is also good for all of us because we are all part of humanity. Remember, Adam also is male and female here. And as we continue on in verse 50, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. You know, the fallen man could not do it without a savior. We absolutely need a redeemer every day in our life. And the whole world would be wasted without the atonement of our savior, Jesus Christ. He concludes in chapter 15, verses 51 to 52 by saying, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. And he's talking about one of the mysteries. He continues on in verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? You know, Paul has been close to death many times. He's gone through horrendous torture. And yet he knows he has such faith. He has such hope um, that the sting of death is gone. And Handel used this one as well. In verse 57, he ends, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul moves ahead and he says in verse 58, I'm going to read the BSB translation. Always excel in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So he's now moving away from the message of the restoration and the kingdoms. And he's talking about, I need all of you to excel. You know, I think of our wonderful missionaries. I think of our wonderful members of the church who accept callings and are willing to stretch beyond their current capacities. He then goes on to chapter 16 to talk about the need to gather the tithings and the offerings. And in the King James, it's called your liberality. And he says, when I come, I'm going to want you to have all of, the, all of your 
offerings already gathered. So I want you every Sunday to put a little bit aside, you know, put aside your tithes and your offerings. And then when I come, I will take your contributions to Jerusalem. This is a wonderful sign that the church was unified, that we have the leadership in Jerusalem working with those people, even out on the outskirts in in Europe here in Corinth. Paul also tells them in verses five through nine that he's going to come and visit. He wants to spend the winter there in Corinth, and he hopes to travel soon. It says in the new rendition, I will come to you. I do not want to just see you in passing. I hope to spend some time without, if the Lord should permit. We read about this also in Acts chapter 20. Chapter 16, verse 10 through 12 says, I can't come yet though, so I'm sending you Timothy. And he says in verse 10, when Timothy comes, skipping down a little bit, he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. So he's saying, please accept him as if you were accepting me. And then down to verse 12, and as touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come. You know, before he talked about the divisions with people saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. He said, no, 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 Apollos and I are unified in this work. I've asked him to please come, but the Lord has something else for him. He concludes this letter in chapter 16, verse 13 to 20 with his conclusion. And starting with verse 13, the NIV reads, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. And then he moves on to verse 14, do everything in love. And he talks about the love of the churches. He said, the churches of Asia greet you. Remember, he's in Ephesus, so that's modern-day Turkey, the western coast, but that's called Asia or Asia Minor. And then he starts talking about the household of Stephanus and Aquila and Priscilla, these people that they knew are now over in Ephesus with him, and he's referring to them um, by name. And then he adds his own little postscript in verse 21, the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. And then we have a very strange verse If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be an anathema marina. Now that's the King James Version, but in the BSB, we get it actually translated and it says, be under divine curse. Come, O Lord. So he's saying, if you're going to deny the faith, you're going to be cursed, but just hang in there. Wait for the coming of the Lord. I feel like so much of the message that he has here for the saints in Corinth apply to us now. We need to endure to the second coming. There may be things that go against our culture as they did in Paul's culture, but our prophet is a servant of God and we are servants of Christ and we need to build his kingdom so that he can come again. I think this is a wonderful book of scripture, especially with the blessings of inspiration and prophetic help. I pray that you might draw closer to Christ by studying it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.